Hey there, everyone. From beautiful Fort Collins, Colorado, halfway between Cheyenne and Denver, and 5,003 feet above sea level, I'm Jeff Haber, and you're listening to No Bed of Roses. No Bed of Roses is brought to you by Conexus. Maybe your company is creating video content or you're a brand looking for that coveted direct connection with viewers. Maybe you're an established YouTube creator or you're just starting out. Conexus Interactive Web Video Solutions enables viewers while watching your videos to simply tap on the items they're interested in, directly connecting them to the merchant's shopping cart to easily purchase those items. This all happens without ever leaving the video experience and without ever leaving the site where they started watching the video in the first place. Connexus shoppable video content works using any browser on any device. No download, no plugin, nothing to install. Interactive video like you've always wanted it. Find out more at connexus.com. That's K-E-N-X-U-S dot com. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today, Raul Leal, has recently stepped down as CEO of Virgin Hotels after almost nine years at the helm, helping Richard Branson launch a hospitality concept that was at the point that he joined the company, not much more than a concept and a really punchy PowerPoint deck. If not for the bold and fateful decision made by his father decades ago, as his homeland of Cuba and much of the rest of the world were about to change forever, Raul would most certainly have a very different journey to share with us today. I caught up with Raul as he just returned from a stay at Chip Conley's new place, the Modern Elder Academy. Here's Raul. I went to Pescadero and I spent time with Chip Conley at what he calls the Modern Elder Academy, which is an interesting place for those very spiritually inclined and looking to make a change or pivoting in their careers or just really want to relax and uh, enjoy a wonderful place. I really enjoyed it. I saw something, Raul, I want to say probably on LinkedIn with Chip and his crew out in the middle of what looked to me like, and I'm going to be wrong, but beautiful Sonoran type of desert with some wild horses. And they were celebrating what was going to be a groundbreaking? Am I am I completely screwing this up? No, I think you're right. Now, I believe that's going to be, if memory serves me right, in New Mexico, I think. Uh, yeah, you're he's right. Gonna, he's going to do a second one of these. The first one of these is actually in, uh, as I said, it's like 45 minutes outside of Cabo at a place called Pescadero, very close to a very charming village or town called Dos Santos, which I highly recommend on a beautifully unspoiled beach, uh, not commercial at all, beautiful mountains in the background, just an incredible place. And it's kind of exactly what I said. It's really, he says for anybody over 45, but there was people there younger than 45 actually, but people that are just looking to rethink their life or to 
tipping point in their career or are just looking to really not do cell phones, emails, and then kind of mingle with like-minded people and be in, and be in nature. It's a lovely place. And I'd highly recommend it. And I'd go back in a heartbeat. That's a big endorsement, Raul. It was so uncommercialized that, you know, for once, you know, for me coming off of this job with, with Virgin, where I've been, you know, except for the, during the time of COVID, essentially traveling about 130,000 miles a year for the last eight years, it was kind of a great break in between to just kind of subtly, you know, re-anchor yourself on the beach and listen to the waves. And, you know, they do, they do, uh, they do some sabbatical classes with some, again, some of the other guests as well, some guest speakers, and then very nice. And how many people? I'd say max maybe 20, 25. I think the well, the whole complex is really about 24 rooms all together on the beach. And it started with, I think, Chip bought it about four or five years ago. He planned on it being his home, an old, you know, very old, torn down building on the beach where he had to redo and then came up with this idea, which I think is going to be, uh, I think it's going to go beyond people 45 and over. I really think in today's environment, it's just a great thing to be able to get away and be in nature like that and think about your life and, you know, what you want to do next or not. Something like this, is it within most people's means, Raul, or this is, you're going to, you're going to spend a little bit of coin on this? No, I think it's within most people's means. I think most people that are, you know, at that point in their life, for sure, it's not expensive. And I think, I think purposely, uh, you know, certainly I, I didn't think it was expensive at all. Maybe it'll get more expensive in time, but at this point in time, it's, and, you know, the meals were delicious. They, they have their own organic garden where they, you know, get all their vegetables from and all their fruits. So breakfast, lunch and dinner was, uh, you know, a bit of a sabbatical thing on its own, kind of a ritual every day with the group. And then people would break up off and then go to different, you know, whatever they wanted to do, go hiking, go to the beach, go running, meditate, just sit around, look at the water. It's pretty spectacular, actually. But definitely... Definitely for people who want to just disconnect. I love it. I was fortunate enough to experience years ago Canyon Ranch. The original founders were there, but it was it was rooted, I think, in some of that spirit that you're describing that Chip is trying to bring back. Just the the ability to catch your breath, to breathe again, was the idea. Everything in my in my being says to me that we're headed down that path a bit. That there's going to be a lot more and more and more of that as we find a way to disconnect from the all-consuming devices that, you know, run our lives these days. You know, I've been saying for a long time, this is way before when I was at Desires Hotels and we were growing that company. I used to say to our executives and our GMs, I said, you know, there's there's taskers, there's taskers, and then there's creative people, right? And the taskers are they're tasking all the time. They're on their computer, they're writing memos or returning texts or whatever the communication form was back then. You know, it's been... That was in 2005 or six. Uh, and the creative people, the thinkers, are the ones that are taking a little bit of time to stay away from that stuff and, um, you know, continue to come up with ideas to move the business forward and their lives. And I, I still I think that's even more relevant today because I think we're constantly tasking and tasking and tasking. It doesn't I, give us time to express our creativity. And inherently, I think all people are creative. You said as the former CEO of Virgin Hotels, you traveled how many miles did you estimate or do, do you know, Raul? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I, I was traveling about 125,000 miles a year and and they were, most of it was domestic, so it wasn't long trips, so you can imagine, right? Your wife is a saint. 
too many <laughs> to say that. Well, just to put up, just to just to put up with me anyway. She's a saint. Yeah, right. Uh, this goes this goes without saying. Uh, you mentioned Alice for people who are not hospitality pros. Raul, share with us what is what is Alice? Where were you? So Alice is uh, the 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 American Lodging Industry Conference every year, the investment conference in uh, Los Angeles, which essentially, except for this year. Uh, kicks off the hotel year every year, and every hotel here in the world is there. All your investment people are there. There's great topics that are covered. Two or three days of seeing your friends and kind of kicking off the year, right? So, except for 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 this year, of course, which we couldn't do with COVID, uh, the Alice Investment Conference, which is now being held in July, I think this year in LA. So I'm looking forward to that. Nice. That'll be probably a lot of people very happy to see each other again. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I can't wait. Let's talk about you and Virgin Hotels and best job ever. Um, it was great. It was awesome. I have, I've had, I've been really fortunate. I think I've had a bunch of great gigs, including my own when I was working with Richard Millard and we had our own company in Miami and that's really how I work with Richard Branson. But I think extremely fortunate to have had that capacity because as you know, I'm a hotel guy my entire life and uh, or a hotel person. And, um, you know, most of us in the industry don't get a chance to step outside the industry. And Virgin is not, you know, a hotel company. They're basically an in, a company that has 25 or 30 global businesses in all kinds of different sectors. So it was wonderful being on the inside and understanding how a global, such beloved brand works. And I probably learned a lot more during that 10 and a half year period than I would have learned had I just been in the hotel business. Uh, it gave me a, a pretty specific point of view on, on, I'll say this, it sounds repetitive, but on just having a point of view about things, which is something that Virgin's very big on. And I can speak to that a little bit more, but it was a wonderful time. I think, uh, you know, without comparing jobs to other jobs and people to people, whatever, it was just great. I was very fortunate. Well, let's, let's talk about that, Raul, having a point of view. Is this something that is in the DNA of Virgin? Is this something that you have carried with you through your career? I, I think inherently I probably did, but not to the extent of learning how to use it like when I was at Virgin. So I think at Virgin, we pondered different strategies. And even when we were putting the product together for the hotel company, it was always about having a very specific point of view that was data-driven and very consumer-driven. So a great example of that is, is the guest room. You know, we were, we were messing around with the guest room trying to figure out really what it was going to be. Virgin had a, an idea. I had an idea. But then I was uh, – one day I was fortunate enough to be on the Board of Entrepreneurship and Innovation for Cornell, even though I'm not a graduate. They had an amazing speaker, and I, I, I do forget the lady's name. I'm so sorry. But – she had spoken to the fact that the business traveler, the female business traveler had escalated between 2004 and 2010. I think it had gone up from 24% of all the business traveler population to 42% at that point, which is now much higher. Actually, it's now either 50 or higher than that, or was, you know, prior COVID. That was a, a, a tipping point for us. I took that data and we did go back and do significant focus groups and the product in the Virgin guest room really was a result of that. Why is the room divided in half? Why is the bed so funky looking? And, you know, all the touch points that we did in that room. So it really was about being data driven. It was about finding out what are the consumer displeasers, really, not just our own point of view, and then addressing those simply. 
and and having that having that point of view on everything that we did, whether it was you know drafting the the employee journey, which we we spent a lot of time doing that, or, or or the Lucy the app or whatever else we did, we always we always had that on the wall. What's our point of view on this? Coming from your very diverse background within hospitality, and and we'll we'll go back and cover that. Sure. But did you feel that you brought just a package of experience that really bolted in nicely to what Branson or Branson's team were looking to do? Or were you guys kind of just finding your way? Actually, it was the marriage made in heaven. They were looking for, they were looking for someone who uh, had a bit of the entrepreneur bug, was independent, but also understood the traditional successes inside the hotel business, if that makes sense. So they were looking for a little bit of everything. They weren't looking for someone who had just been, let's say, with a legacy brand for the last 25 years, and that's all they knew. They wanted someone who could think out of box, bought a different point of view, understood technology to some degree, and then was able to help them craft the consumer journey and mirror the other virgin companies, right? But I think it was a little bit of both. I already had some of that in me uh, already and was open to a lot more change. We were step-by-step developing what the product was going to be. There was no shooting from the hip. There was lots of sticky notes on the wall, by the way, hundreds of ideas, but you know, you could only do so many and we wanted to make the ones that had the most impact, but it was a great marriage. I thought because they, what they were looking for was essentially some of the qualities that I brought at that point in my career. Do you go to London? Do you go to New York with that first time that you're going to walk in, meet the team or meet Branson? What was, what was that like? Well, it's a funny story. Actually, it didn't happen like that at all. So I was, I was, you know, as you know, I was the president of Desires Hotels in Miami and that was a boutique hotel company with about 20 different, you know, hip boutique hotels all over the country, Puerto Rican and so Puerto Rico and some in uh, Latin America. And one of our hotels was the Betsy on South beach. And the Betsy was the only five-star hotel on Miami beach at the time. Lovely hotel. It's only 70 keys and the steakhouse, it had BLT as a steakhouse, Bistro Laurent Torondel. The, the general manager of the hotel in a prior life had, had worked for Richard Branson in uh, Necker Island. He called me one day out of the blue. He said, hey, Richard is going to be here today for lunch. He'd like to, he's, he, I'm going to give him a room for a few hours. He's passing through. Do you want to meet him? I said, sure. So I hopped in my car, went over to the Betsy and there was Richard having, you know, a cup of tea in the lobby, you know, lovely as always, authentic, just easiest guy to talk to ever, really. That's just really the way he is. So we chit-chatted for about 30 minutes, and he he said, my God, I love the I love what you've done and the design, and I understand you're responsible. I said, yes, and blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, he said, would you like to run Virgin Hotels? Okay, hold on. So you hop in your car, you drive over the Betsy, there's Richard having tea. I got to slow yeah. this down a little bit. It just uh, is sipping tea mm-hmm. and he just cut to the chase. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I didn't really know what to say. I didn't know him that well yet. So I said, so what is Virgin Hotels? Now this is 2009. He said, well, Virgin Hotels is our uh, entry point into the hotel business. Uh, and we're looking for someone to help us, you know, get it there. And I said, well, I said, Richard, you know, I'm honored. And, you know, I didn't, I was embarrassed actually. And I said, uh, you know, I, I own my own company and I'm happy, but I'm happy to help out, by the way, at this point. That's what I said. Was this foreshadowing of who Richard Branson is? Is that, is he A to B, boom, like that? Very, yes. 
absolutely. Uh, and you know, Richard will has a, a short attention span like anyone else these days, but when you're with him, you feel like you and him are the only people in the room. Did you get the sense that he had done due diligence on you or that your, your buddy who is running that? I mean, yeah, I think, I think my friend who was running the hotel had, had, you know, probably said a few words and then Richard, Richard did love the design to the, to the, of the best scene. I think I find out why years later, because when I went to Necker Island to visit seven or eight years later, my first visit to Necker, it seemed a lot like the same design, that kind of soft, you know, kind of Caribbean feel, uh, luxurious, but not really, not stuffy, right? Just super comfortable. And that's what the Betsy is. Yeah, understated elegance, yeah, right? No doubt about it. Those are the right, those are the right words. He said, well, I'll, I'll put you in touch with our people. He said, okay. So I started working with the team in New York and advising them on how they should do it and whatever else without ever accepting the position. And then made some introductions to some potential capital partners for them. You know, I was just going about my business, running my company. It was post 2008. So we were like everybody else trying to struggling to keep the business afloat. And then about a year and a half later, they, you know, they, they formally approached me and said, look, we're really going to launch. And some of the partners that you introduced to us are going to help us launch. And we'd like you to, you know, so it took me a little bit. And then I spoke to my business partner and about six months later, I accepted the job and that was it. But by then, by then I knew all of them and it was, it was never formal. It was, it was terribly informal. We had meetings and lunches and met some people here and there for a drink, but there was never this, interview process where you go from office to office and meet different people. It just, it's virgin. It's not that way. And that's across the board, Raul. That's, that's just how they operate. That's the way that they run the business. And, and, you know, and it it works for them. Uh, Each business has their own board of directors uh, as we did. And they all report into a bunch of what they call partners at Virgin group. And uh, the chairman of Virgin group reports into Richard. Was it easy to bring in your sensibilities to that kind of style, their sensibilities? You said marriage made in heaven. Yeah, very similar. It was very similar. We were very similar. Uh, You know, I have a wicked sense of humor and so do they. Right. So, I mean, it was very, it was a quick match and it's a funny story, but I had walked in, you know, prior to that, I had been the president of the company in Miami and we had some lovely offices on Brickle Key and, you know, I had the typical president's office, you know, with nice view and a big office and the whole thing, which I always thought most of the time was too pretentious for me anyway. But but I, I walk into to Virgin and they sit me down at a desk somewhere. And uh, I think this is a funny story. And they I sit myself down for you know a couple of days and I, I really don't unpack or anything. I'm walking around the office, which is pretty big in New York, and I'm you know seeing the different areas. And the way they do it is that office in New York is where they incubate all the businesses. So they bring in businesses there to launch, and then the business winds up relocating wherever the CEO is going to put the business. A few days go by, and I thought to myself, well, they're probably building out my office. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Can't wait to see what it's going what to look, look like. It. How about that view? <laughs> I, I walked around, and I haven't seen it, but this is a big place. Maybe I missed it. Right? So, they're so, so about another few days go by, and I go – to the gentleman who was there, the board member, his name is Anthony Marito. And I said, Anthony, where's my office? He said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, don't I have an office? He said, he said you're sitting in you're it. You're in it, yeah. You're in it. Said, oh, <laughs> said, well, what if I want to have a meeting? He said, well, that's what all the little meeting rooms are here for. You reserve those meeting rooms with the, here's the deal, because we have different businesses here and you reserve them at different times or whatever. So it took a little while to get used to that, in all honesty. But you know what? After I got used to it, 
I don't think I ever want another office again, frankly. I mean, at Virgin Hotels, I barely had a desk. I'd walk around with my laptop and my phone and just plug myself down anywhere. So uh, it just became a way of life. I'm pretty flexible. Is that Branson style? Is that trickle down? Yeah, no offices. They they love the they love the the open pit scenario and they feel it creates lots of synergies and chemistry. And I tend to agree. As long as you have enough meeting rooms to break into, to be able to have private meetings when you need to have those. Uh, but mostly, none of the CEOs really have you know an office. They may have a desk in a corner somewhere for a call with the board or something, but I didn't even have that at Virgin Hotels and I was totally okay with it. Managers manage from the floor, whatever la- whatever level you are. So culturally, culturally, I think it's very effective. At least for, at least for, for me, it was. It became very effective for me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, it works for them and it's a great, and I, I love that style. And I'm pretty sure whatever I do next, I hope doesn't have a big corner office. <laughs> I would assume, Raul, that just your team would be, just feel so connected to you that you're literally, I mean, your shoulder, you're right there. That's Raul on the couch right there. With, okay, great. Got him. Yeah, for sure. But it takes, but look, it's not for everybody. It isn't. I mean, some people that, you know, we brought into the organization from other companies that have been with other companies for a while had a hard time adjusting. We can't paint the picture of the extraordinary executive suite for Raul Leal sitting atop the kingdom of the luxury brand that Virgin became, and then have that juxtaposed to your very and your family's very humble beginnings, Raul. Well, thank you for that. I think there's so many of us, Jeff, as you know, that have had humble beginnings in the hotel business. I mean, a lot of us really have. We've all started... I think most of us in the hotel business, even with the best of degrees, you know, started in the in the back of the house or whatever else. But to to my family's beginnings, yeah, I mean, we were uh, we were very fortunate. You know, my my father actually worked for the anti for the anti Castro government. He had to leave there in, in a hurry in the in the '60s, and it was it's a bit like a movie. He left overnight, just left the country, and left us behind to come set up shop in Miami. He had to go through Mexico for six months to get a visa, then came to Miami, got a job as a, as a dishwasher actually himself. And he had been the assistant treasurer in Havana. So he had, he had a pretty big job. He went from the assistant treasurer, the treasury of Cuba to washing dishes. Yes. And by the time he came back nine months later to pick us up, uh, most of the people that he had worked with in that, in that government were either in jail or missing. And you're how old at this point, Raul? Well, I was like two months old. I was, you know, just a little baby. I'd been, you know, just born and he left. So when he came back, when he came back, I was like nine months old or something. So, uh, and, and your mom and siblings, my mom and my sister, who was a little older, you know, like five years older, you know, like five or six. And then, uh, so then he snuck in overnight and had some connections with Pan Am, and they flew out with as little belongings to Miami and left and never looked back. But had he not done that, we, you know, I, we, who knows what my life would have been like, right? But uh, or my family's. But it's possible that you know none, none of us could have made it because he was affiliated with the prior regime. So he totally saved our life. Do you have family, friends in uh, Miami? What anybody when your dad gets there? No, no, we didn't, nobody. And of course, back then you didn't have the internet or whatever else. So you didn't speak the language. So he just, you know, started working at a hotel and, uh, 
you know, he learned the language and he actually stayed at the same hotel for 45 years and then retired. So he never left that hotel. He, you know, rose up the ranks. He was the manager of the hotel. He was the food and beverage director. Went through five or six different ownership groups during that period of time. And then finally they sold it about, let's see how long, like 12 years ago, they sold it to make it condos and then he retired. Is it safe to say he's the reason that you are where you are? You took the path into hospitality because of your dad? Well, I, I didn't really. I just I just wanted to start working when I was in middle school. So what actually happened is uh, I, I worked for him as a summer as a busboy, busboy and part-time dishwasher both. Actually, it was dishwasher then busboy, sorry. He was the director of FMB and he gave me a job part-time. And, you know, of course, uh, you know, I wanted to be the very best example. And um, I actually thought, well, I'm not going to go back to school. I'm just going to work. Then one day when I became and I got promoted to become a busboy, I've told this story many times, I would see the general manager coming in every day and having breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I'd keep looking at this guy as having a great time. He's entertaining every day. He's, you know, he's in charge. I said, so I said to my dad, you know, dad, I want to be that guy. I want to come in and sign the bill every day in the restaurant. So my dad very subtly said, yeah, of course, you can be that if you want to be that. He said, but he said, yeah, you probably should go back to school if you want that job. And of course I did finish school and the whole thing. But for a while there, I was thinking I was going to probably just stay in the hotel business, not, not finish school at all. So, And then I just continued to you know, progress. And I started working at the front desk and uh, got fortunate, landed with a company that was very relevant in the 80s, which was the Continental Companies. They were relevant from about 1980, I think, to like 1995. They were sold to Carnival Hotels and Casinos. And uh, it was a, a great, great company that was very progressive. And I, I, you know, I learned a lot about food and beverage, did most of the departments uh, on my way to becoming a general manager somewhere along the way. And then was a GM for about 10 years. And your first GM gig, you loved it? Right away? I mean, did you flash back to the guy that you saw breakfast, lunch, dinner, just signing the ticket and entertaining? Was was it? Yeah, I, lo I loved it. I thought it was the greatest job of all time. I, and I, I always loved being a GM. Uh, wasn't much of an office guy even back then, you know, mostly out with guests and employees most of the time, generally on the floor. But I, I, I love the industry. I, I just thought it was always exciting, never dull. You learn so much from so many different people. It's it's the best school in the universe, in my opinion. So uh, I love that first job, and I still remember it fondly. And it's funny, I just had a call from somebody who worked back then for me, who looked me up on the internet the other day, and just sent me a lovely message. And that was, you know, 30 years ago. You're on the floor. You're in it. You're in the mix. Your team, your team are with you. I guess, again, are going, hey, I'm going to see Raul. I mean, this is what makes a place, a place, a joint, a joint, right? No it's, doubt about it. It's, it's the people and that energy, and that's the uniqueness that you have, that I have, that everyone has. That's it. You, yep. you, can't, you can't duplicate it. Great brands. I'm going to just, I'm going to call out my alma mater, you know, Four Seasons. Awesome There's that alchemy where, you know, people would, people would ask me, how, how, how do they get people like you got? How do they get them? How do they do it? And, you know, I, I, I would say uh, that it is, I believe still more art than science. You can profile people yep. till the cows come home, but it's, it, and once of course, Raul, there's a guy like you out on the floor. I mean, that energy just attracts people. And look, yep. 30 years later, a guy says, Hey, you made a difference in my life in this small conversation. This again is that magic of hospitality. So you're on the floor, you're in the mix, you're making moments and memories, not to sound cliche, uh, and and then what happens after the 10 years as as GM? 
Well, I got pre- I got pretty lucky actually. I was running. Uh, I had the dream job. I was running interstate hotels at the time. Was considered the best hotel management company in the country. This is like 1996. They were also the biggest. And I was fortunate enough to be general manager in my hometown of their biggest hotel and their biggest management fee hotel in the world. It was called the Sheraton Brickle Point. It was a 600-room hotel on Biscayne Boulevard, which did exceptionally well. Uh, just just was the market leader, just a beautiful, beautiful hotel right on the bay. And, and I was very lucky to have that capacity because it was well sought after and uh, just got fortunate enough to, to – win the interviews, I guess, a gentleman by the name of Richard Millard. So Interstate was like every hotel company. I had served my tenure there for a little bit over three years, and they were thinking they had some projects in Mexico, which were coming on board. And since I was one of the only bilingual people in the company, they had approached me to move to Cabo, I think was. Let me stop you right there for a second, Raul, because so you were one of the only bilingual people in Interstate at the time, how many people, how, Interstate's a big company. How many, how many people at, at the time that you're talking about? Well, they had 180 hotels. So, so in the executive suites, I, 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 just now, especially because, you know, diversity is, is such a big thing for all of us now. It just, that kind of, that kind of grabbed me that you're the only, you know, one of the only bilingual people. Was that at, at the time, I mean, you're going to say, well, that's just, just the way it was. Was it, was it surprising to you or that truly was just the way it was? Not at all. It wasn't something that I thought about. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't think about it that way. I just did not want to relocate to Mexico at the time because my daughter had just been born. I, I said, you look, I'm not really interested. And I, I kind of saw the handwriting on the wall that, you know, something was going to happen because sooner or later you're going to have to move. And I didn't really want to leave Miami at that moment, given my family and my daughter was here and it was the only grandchild my mom and dad had. And and that is a reality of this business. You're, you're going to make those moves. You are, although I think it's changing. Uh, a little bit. I think I think people today have a little bit more say in it, obviously, than they did back then. Especially because you know, now if you're going to be a GM somewhere, you got to go run the hotel. I totally get it, but I think people today aren't as easy to relocate as they were back then, in my opinion. But and then I was fortunate. Uh, there was a, a gentleman. His name is Richard Millard. He was running a company called Tecton Hospitality. They had been mostly doing RTC-related businesses from the bailout of the late '80s. And R- RT- RTC role being. The Resolution Trust Corporation was a a government entity that was set up to deal with all the failed assets that were going back to the banks. Kind of like TARP later on, what we just went through with TARP, right? Toxic assets. Thousands of hotels that were were all of a sudden defaulted because the tax laws in 1987 changed. Prior to 1987, prior to the Tax Reform Act of 1987, hotel losses could be written off to your taxes. So in 1986, I think it was, when they changed that law and said, well, Mr. Hotel Owner, you can no longer write off these losses. A lot of those hotels then weren't profitable or the owners started losing real money. Right. They gave those thousands of hotels that defaulted. And that's really what, when the stock market crashed, that was the big part of it. So a lot of people don't know that. Then uh, that business was basically just managing for a little while, t- giving them back to the bank or waiting for somebody to buy them. And Tecton had done about 250 of those bailouts, but he wanted to establish a real company. So he had seven hotels that he had bought during that period of time. 
And he said, look, I need somebody who's a little bit more tech forward than I am and a little bit more today to run this company. Let's grow it together. And he made me a partner. So we grew the company from seven hotels to 35 branded hotels. And we became a preferred hotel management company for everybody. What period of time? Over about five years until I got bored with that. You did five <laughs> years. You did almost seven properties a year for five years? Yeah. We did a lot because we were, we were, we were known as good operators. There was an appetite for uh, other companies outside of interstate, which was kind of consuming the industry at that point. But in 1999, I saw the boutique hotel trend coming and started to get a little bored of the legacy brands, even though we were running a bunch of them and owned a bunch of them. So that's when we, in 2002, we, we, we picked up our first lifestyle hotel, which was an awesome first, first pick for us, which was the Water Cub in Puerto Rico. And the Water Cub had just been voted one of the coolest hotels in the world by Conley Nast, but was doing terribly. Was it an independent? Independent. Okay. And we quickly turned it around and became, uh, gathered the reputation for knowing how to operate those hotels. Because at the time, the only people, the only game in town was really Morgan's or Kinton. There was nobody else doing third party, third party lifestyle hotel management. So we launched Desires Hotels and we added 20 lifestyle hotels over a period of like seven or eight years. So this is a hell of a run. Well, it was a great run. It was like 14 years altogether, I think 13 or 14 years altogether. But I think the, the biggest accomplishment was taking a legacy company, merging it with a lifestyle hotel company and creating a culture that gets along. Because if you think about it, it was a hodgepodge of different types of hotels, lifestyle. And we had Marriott, Sheridan, Hilton's. We had Hampton Inns and full service Sheridan's and what forth. And then we had this 80 room boutique hotel in Puerto Rico doing 10 million a year in food and beverage. And this, you know, the Sagamore on Miami Beach doing 15 million for a 90 room hotel. Those kinds of edgy kind of boutique hotels. So it was interesting. And we were able to create a culture during a period of time that really you know, it was tremendous for the organization. Both sides finally learned to love each other. <laughs> Wolfgang Puck's partner, Peter, coming in as guests and as down to Four Seasons in Austin, describing this experience, uh, this experiment that the company was running that, you know, they didn't necessarily want to trade away the the upside with celebrity chefs like Puck, like they'd been doing. They wanted to see if they could bring this independent F&B, F&B forward experience, kind of like what I'm imagining you had at the Sagamore, if you're doing those kinds of numbers. They wanted to keep that all in-house, right? And uh, and I was describing this, and he goes, yeah, how's that working for you? And I said, well, it's, it's still early. Three years later, you know, there was a mushroom cloud over that whole that whole thing, but but yeah. with phenomenal success, but the culture role, like grinding gears, trying to put that independent F&B experience together with a very staid, very excellent, but very staid hotel kind of model. For this hybrid organization, we decided to create one purpose, one belief system that unified everyone. If you've ever read the book Built to Last by James Collins, it's a great book. It's like in 1995 or whatever. It talks a lot about how beliefs and purpose of a company, when they're cemented right and people buy into it, should be able to survive many transitions, including CEO transitions and economic downfalls and all kinds of things, as long as the purpose and the beliefs of the organization are grounded much like Four Seasons, which has a strong set of 
you know, core beliefs. And that's why that company's always been so, so incredibly successful. Right. I mean, really golden rule. I mean, you can just, you can strip everything away. If the Izzy Sharp's golden rule, that is it. It's like I said to somebody the other day, what would happen? And this is off subject a little bit. What would happen if all of a sudden all the points programs went away? Who would be the leader if there was no points? And I have to say it's four seasons because they've never had a points program. It's true. It's true. Think about that. That would be real loyalty to measure real loyalties. Get rid of all the points programs and then let's see who survives and who does well. Right. But going back to what I was saying, it was really about, you know, establishing this this continuity in the belief system of the company. And I'll tell you a quick story. We had gone, spent years putting this simple belief statement together. It was a series of three or four little statements. This is you and Richard now putting this together? Richard Millard, myself, and the, the head of people and some of the, you know, the executive team. And we had gone out to the hotels and gotten the feedback from the teams and had gotten feedback from consumers and you know, we debated and we said, no, and we're not doing this and this is too hard. And what is it going to be? And we got to make up our minds, whatever, blah, blah. So finally we settled on the belief statements. And so we, we rolled it out. We went on this year long thing to roll out these beliefs and purpose statements to the hotels. And at that point there was, you know, 35, 37 hotels that were a mix of either franchise or cool boutique or whatever. We rolled them out anticipating all these wonderful things to happen. So the reverse happened. It got worse. The employee opinion surveys went down. Our guest service scores went down. Everything kind of went to hell. And did it happen quickly? Over the course of the year. And then I said, it's okay. I'll never forget the, the, the call with our team. I said, hold the course. So here's what happened. A lot of people didn't really buy into it in the field. So those people wind up leaving. A year later, when mostly everybody had left who didn't believe in this newfound culture and purpose and belief statement, all our scores... GSIs, employee opinion survey scores, escalated, 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 and then uh, maintained. So that was it. That was the key to those two companies together. But we had to go through hell to get it there. We had to come up with it, make people believe in it, educate people what it meant for them and for the company and, you know, for the well-being of the teammates, the investors and our, our consumers and everybody else, and then buy into it. And the people that didn't buy into it, that's why our turnover skyrocketed from like 30% to like 60% in a year. And uh, there were lots of naysayers that say, this is not going to work. We said, well, hold the course. And, and it did work, but we had to go through hell to get there. And you had to have people to your left and right yeah. who were in it, in deep with you, because you know you show a little weakness and just some negative back channel chatter and you're done. Yeah, so we could not... Um, you know, we, we, we couldn't waver. We'd spent all this time and money into it. We'd spent lots of money in this thing. And, and we had told our owners what we were doing and whatever else. I said, let's just, let's just hold and see what happens. But when I saw those turnover numbers, I thought this is a good thing. Yeah. This means that we're weeding out the people that don't want to be a part of this. Did you foresee Raul Airbnb? I did not. I didn't totally out of the blue. And I think, uh, you know, I, I I probably was one of the first adopters. I tried it right away in like, you know, 2010 or something. You know, I, I just wanted to understand it. Right. And it was at a very basic. And I said, wow, this is this is pretty interesting. And I think everybody in the industry kind of laughed it off a little bit, unfortunately. I think today it's a tremendous threat to the industry, not just because, you know, consumers are 
looking for new, you know, the whole cliche, you know, consumers are looking for new experiences and they want to control their time and their travel. I get all that. I think that the big, the big thing is that um, Airbnb is very sophisticated about the way that they slice up and dice their data. And, uh, you know, they have a sophisticated data management system run by AI and they're, they're able to do lots with that data as opposed to when you've got, you know, competing management, competing brands like Hilton, you know, Marriott, you know, I know that they've tried to consolidate data through Adara, who's out there trying to bring all that together. But I, I think that Airbnb on the data side is way ahead of the rest of the industry. And I think that's where the advantage is. From your not super luxurious, not corner office in the top of the world of virgin hospitality and beyond now, you picked up your magic eight ball. What are you seeing? What are you feeling? What are you thinking about the way forward for hospitality? I think we're under attack from a lot of different areas and we're going to have to adapt quickly. I think that uh, the brands should be cautious about rolling out new brands unless those brands really stand for something and are differentiated enough for the consumer to say, well, you know what, I'm really going to try this because uh, this is different than the guys next door. So I think that that's got to be something we have to think about as an industry, especially those bigger brands. Is, and I understand that they have, to, they have to drive stock price through growth. I understand. But I think in the future, maybe stock price through growth won't be the measurement of success. Maybe, you know, less turnover in brands, you know, at some of these big brands that have 20 or 30 different brands and how many of those can really be relevant. Right. But I think the middle market of the industry, I used to own a couple of middle market hotels myself that will remain unnamed. How do you define middle market? Middle market would be your four star, let's say full service legacy brand, four star, maybe let's just say, you know, a typical four star Hilton somewhere. That's a full service hotel like that. I think those full service hotels that are in the middle there are really going to have to differentiate themselves or they're going to be in big trouble. Because if you have a box that doesn't really have anything else except guest rooms and the brand name on the building and there's no differentiation in product experience or food and beverage, I think you're going to be in trouble in the future. There, there were a bunch of senior Marriott execs that came to a property that was running uh, all about the F and B, and they were saying that this is this is what we as a company are looking at. We are looking, and again, it goes back to that thing I was describing with Four Seasons years ago, Raul. That independent, dynamic, really integrated into the community kind of F and B experience. That that was the tip of the spear. Do you see that as? as being grounded is that real does that relevant still and when yeah, you I say the consumer making a property relevant, even what does that mean for business you know the lines of work and play continue to be blurred right so i think consumers will be looking to also you know be entertained uh have a product that is differentiated a little bit from the competitors next door uh you know have public areas that do do appeal to you know some of the the locals coming into your hotel these days and spending time there and and going back to making it more than just an empty lobby in some hotels you know i said to somebody the other day inside one of the big brands you can't take soho house furniture and put it inside a typical branded hotel 
and expect you're going to get the Soho House crowd. It doesn't work that way. It's a combination. It has to be a combination of the, the demographics and the, the design and culture of the hotel kind of working together to draw whatever demographic it is that you're trying to attract in your hotel, right? But I think there's a lot of little thought just given to saying, let's just spew out another brand. Let's just put out this brand because we think that that's what this, you know, demographic wants at this point in time without actually doing the research. You know, being relevant is very easy to measure. It's really about, you know, being successful. And are you seeing, you know, rep par growth and, you know, index growth inside your hotels on a continuous basis? And what's your repeat guest factor like? And are, are the experiences, you know, are people coming back? What is that repeat guest factor? Is it increasing or is it going the other way? Rev par for our non-hardcore hospitality listeners, revenue per available room, what the industry lives and dies by. Yeah, I know it is. And it's a measurement of growth against your competitive set. But I, I do think, you know, that can be misleading as well. You could have a hotel that does great in Revpar just because of the particular market it's in without any discernible experience or differentiation whatsoever. But in markets that are saturated by hotels, that's where you have to work hard to differentiate yourself. You've stepped down as CEO, but you are still on the board or a board I am. I'm on the Virgin Group Board. What does that mean for you? How, how are you involved still with the company? Uh, it means that I'm able to advise them on the brand marketing and brand designs of the other businesses as well. You know, this yeah feels like Virgin or doesn't feel like Virgin or, you know, help me understand why it is the direction that we're going in. So it's an advisory capacity to the, the Virgin Group Board, uh, which I'm, I'm fortunate that they think so highly of me to be able to advise them across the broader group. You mentioned earlier when you were talking about the business and the threat from Airbnb, and you said we a couple of times. So once uh, once a hospitality guy, always a hospitality guy. But is there something on the near horizon for you now, Raul? Uh, several things. Something dramatic, I hope. <laughs> ah. but, uh, can you can you share can you share any of it, or is it too early? It's a bit too early. I mean, really, I I, I didn't want to take a little time off this year uh, and do something that I haven't done. You know, when I left Ver- when I left Desires Hotels, I left on a uh, I left on a Friday and started Virgin on Sunday night. <laughs> I haven't taken a break for a little while, so I, I, I'm taking a little break. I'm consulting in a few things uh, and also working with Virgin Group. And then uh, definitely something in the in the hospitality industry. Look, I think our industry now more than ever is going to need leadership. It really is. And I think those of us that are passionate about the industry need to stick together to, to as I say, fight, fight the, the forces of evil, whatever those may be, everything that's being thrown at us, whether it's, you know, AI or the issues relative to diversity and social impact today and, and, and sustainability. And, uh, you know, I want to be, I want to be part of that leadership of the industry. It's inherently, you know, in my blood, having been in the industry all these years. So this is it. You can't shake it. This is, this is what I affectionately call the mutant hospitality gene. And it's <laughs> in you and you cannot shake it. And it is the unceasing desire and need visceral need to be of service. It's a wonderful industry. I mean, you learn so much from this industry and you get to see so much. I've gotten to see so much in the industry. I'm very, very grateful. With so many uh, friends, colleagues, family members that are casualties that are in the hospitality industry that have just been waylaid by the pandemic, any thoughts or feelings about that and about what percentage of 
those people might be able to come back into the business or any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. I think, I think the majority is going to come back. Let me, let me tell you why. Look, I, I know that we are thinking through all these great synergies and things that we've been able to put into effect during COVID and to reduce infrastructure and manage efficiencies better. But at the end of the day, once the occupancies and the average rates of the hotel come back, which they will soon, the consumers are going to demand service. And the owners of our hotels are going to demand service from the brands. And we're going to begin to see people coming back to work, whether at the corporate level where they've been laid off or at the hotels. Because the consumer is, look, we, I, just, I just saw a, something that was posted by one of our hotels in Nashville. It was one of our employees said they were thrilled to have the business back, but the consumers were being uh, not very nice to our employees. But a lot of it had to do because we were so short-staffed. I get it. We're in the middle of this COVID thing. We're trying to balance things. But I do think most of the jobs will come back for sure. And I think the industry will thrive, maybe just in a different way. I like your glass half full prognosis. We're in for a real reorganization of of the landscape, though. And that my sense from a lot of the stuff that I'm reading, Raul, is there are people that that are just... They feel like they got caught out and they're not going to come back. But maybe that's part of like when you did that transition and okay, whoever shakes out, you know, any of these things, we, you break the bone, the bone is stronger once it heals. No doubt about it. I I agree a hundred percent. From an assistant head of the Cuban treasury to dishwasher in a Miami hotel. Whether it's in the dish pit, on the scale of the best global luxury hotels, or simply how we care for each other person to person, hospitality, the way we look out for and take care of each other, is maybe more important now than ever. Thanks for hanging with Raul and myself. I hope you'll join me again with new episodes dropping every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Mountain Time. Until then, stay safe and remember, you'll find no better roses wherever you find fine podcasts. Thanks. See you soon. Bye.